Welcome to Wildwood College Life of Wildwood Community Church in Norman. We are four following Jesus together to the glory of God. We meet on Sunday mornings at 9.45 for Bible teaching, breakfast, and fellowship, and would love to see you there this week. Follow us on Instagram at Wildwood College for more information. And with that, let's dive into this week's message. Today is like I put salt on my green beans because it makes them taste better and a little bit different, that it could be used as flavoring. And so maybe what he's saying to all the people listening is your presence and the way you acting the way that I'm talking about draws out a different kind of flavor in the world and it makes things taste different to people. That could be what he's saying. But it also was used as a preserving element in that world. So meat would spoil really quickly. Nobody had like the little, you know, mini fridge that they could stick stuff in. And so meat and other things would spoil really quickly. And one of the ways they would prevent that is with salt. It was like the preservative. In fact, I didn't know this, but the word salary actually comes from the fact that Roman soldiers would often be paid in salt, which is interesting. But it's used as a preservative. So he could be saying that as followers of me, you stand as a preservative in the world of preventing and protecting it against decay and the impacts of evil. Okay, that, that could be what he's saying. It was also used in sacrifices. Whenever people made sacrifices, they would use salt as a part of that in addition to the animal. And maybe that's part of what he's saying. Mark talked about this a couple of weeks ago. If you were in the larger church, he talked about in Romans how, how Paul says that we are to be living sacrifices, that God calls us to offer ourselves as living sacrifices. And so maybe that's part of what Jesus is alluding to here, is that his followers look at their, their life as a sacrifice to God, and they live it out that way, and it impacts the world that they do that. It's also used in some negative contexts in Scripture, as like destroying the story of Lot, when somebody turns and looks over their shoulder, they turn into a pillar of salt. Famously, when Roman Carthage had the Carthaginian Wars, or the Punic Wars, at the end, Rome defeats Carthage, and there's so much bitterness that they go and they sow salt in the ground. They sow so much salt that nothing will grow in Carthage again. So it could be that part of what Jesus is saying is that as believers, we stand to destroy evil. And I think there's examples in every generation. One that's really prominent right now and I think is gaining a lot of traction is what can the believing community do about human trafficking, for example? So for every generation, there's evils to be confronted. Or he's talking to a bunch of farmers, right? This is a rural crowd. And he could very easily just be referencing how they're using salt every day to fertilize and to produce growth and help their crops to be able to grow. Too much salt makes it where nothing grows, but the right amount of salt prevents weeds and helps things to grow. And maybe that's what he's saying, is as believers, when we walk with him and we, when we look like Jesus, that it changes the world and it produces growth. We don't know. We don't know exactly which one of these that Jesus is referencing, but what we do know is he's making a larger point, which is we are to be different that we are to be distinct, and that that contrast of us being different is meaningful and produces meaningful change in the world. Let's go to the second part of what he says. 
Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people who light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So again, we're using something that every single one of these people would experience on a day-to-day basis, which is light. What does light do? What does light do? Somebody want to take a stab at How would you describe what light does? Yeah, it helps us see. It reveals, right? And Jesus is saying that as followers of him, that light illuminates and it reveals. So as I was thinking about these first two sections and how to communicate it, I want to give a couple of examples. How is it that when, as believers and followers of Jesus, that we stand as a contrast and that we reveal and we illuminate, what, what would that look like? There's a historian that has traced out the growth of the church in the Roman Empire. If you think about it, one of the bigger kind of upsets in history, maybe the biggest one, is that Christianity goes from a sect that's very persecuted in the first century to there's a point where the face of Jesus is on Roman coins within a few centuries. And the the majority of the Roman Empire would identify themselves as Christian. And how did that happen, right? And he traces it out to a couple of different things. And actually, I have a second, so I'll share both. The first is that in the Roman Empire, it was not considered a blessing to have female children. Males were applauded, but female children were seen as more of a liability because they had to be supported and things like this. This is obviously a very barbaric way of thinking. But often what families would do if they had a female child is they would leave it in the street. And the Christian community saw this and they looked at those babies as people that were created in the image of God And they just started picking them up and adopting them. And within a couple of decades, you had this disproportionate number of women had been raised by families that followed Jesus. And it led to transformation at the core of the Roman Empire. But where did it start? Started with the believers of Jesus acting like salt and light Here's another example from the Roman Empire that I love. There were a series of plagues. So you've all lived through COVID-19, which I don't want to play down the disruptiveness of COVID-19. But COVID-19 has got nothing on the plagues that Europe saw during the Roman Empire. One of those bubonic plagues I think they called it the Black Death, was, it was like if you got it, you had like a 70% chance of dying or something, something crazy. And I mean, it killed off like 30% of the world's population. Like these were like terrible plagues. And when this plague, if it got to your city, it was like you headed for the hills. You got out of town as quickly as possible to the point that like, if you had to leave some of your family, then you left some of your family. 
And there were lots of stories like this where it's like, hey, there's a family of five and you know what? Mom got the plague and so everybody else has to leave and we leave mom and she's probably gonna die. And this was sadly really common. The believing community, the followers of Jesus saw this and they asked themselves a simple question, which is how would Jesus respond in this situation? And instead of fleeing these cities when the plague came in, they decided we're gonna stay. We're gonna stay and we're gonna take care of those people. And you know what? Most of the Christians that stayed died because it was incredibly infectious. And if you got it, you had a 70% chance of dying, but they didn't all die. And most of the people who got the plague died, but they didn't all die. And the ones that didn't had their perspectives absolutely transformed by seeing how the believers in Jesus had laid down their lives to help take care of them. And it fundamentally altered the very fabric of the Roman Empire, these two things. This is what it looks like when as followers of Jesus, we're salt and light. I'll give you one personal example. When I came to college, I thought that I could find meaning and purpose through having a 4.0 and winning all the awards. And so for about two years, that's what I tried to do. And to my disdain, I was super successful. I was able to have a 4.0. I was able to win all those awards. And yet, I did not find what I was looking for. And the turning point in my life was made possible because I was in a secular fraternity. I mean, I've told people before that I probably looked just like any other fraternity guy. I just had a little bit better grades. And there were two guys that had joined my fraternity explicitly because they were Christians and they wanted to be Christians in a pretty non-Christian environment. And they were super interesting to me, you know, just almost an oddity at first. But as I developed friendships with them and I watched their lives, I found it interesting and compelling. And when I finally hit the wall internally of realizing that the place that I was looking for meaning and purpose, that there wasn't any, my relationship with them was a huge influence in me kind of secretly without telling anybody buying a Bible and starting to read the Bible. When we're salt and light, it is transformative. We stand as a contrast to the world around us and it's transformative in the lives of other people. That's what Jesus is saying here. I wanna make one more point and then I wanna do a couple discussion questions before we do the second half. You can't impart what you don't possess. It's one of my favorite quotes. For us to stand as a contrast to the world, for us to reflect and mirror who Jesus is and the character of God, the only way we can do that is if we're personally experiencing it. So we cannot create that contrast unless we really know our Bibles and unless we really know God. Okay, so a couple discussion questions. If you go to the next slide. I want you to think about your life in particular. How has God positioned you, you specifically, to be salt and light as a student this semester? And then the second question is just, what's difficult about being different as a follower of Jesus? 
So we're going to pick back up in the passage, and I'll just go ahead and, and give you a little spoiler alert. Where we're going here in a couple minutes was probably the most life-changing thought process uh, of my life and has a chance, I think, to be for you as well. So let's, let's pick up by going to the next slide. Before we get there, Jesus goes on to say this. He says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So we've got a little bit of a transition thing here, and I just want to make one observation that's really important. Sometimes people will say, isn't the God of the Old Testament pretty different than the God of the New Testament? Like, doesn't the Old Testament feel like kind of different than the New Testament? And one of the most important things to know is that in the eyes of Jesus, and what he is saying here is that the Old Testament is absolutely the Word of God, and that he is not coming to abolish it or to remove it, but to fulfill it. And that, in fact, when they were creating the canon, which is basically, if you've ever wondered, like, how did we get all the things that are in the Bible today? How did they decide what would be in the Bible? They actually had a council that thought about this question really deeply. And they actually considered, should the Old Testament be included with the New Testament? And what they came to was, you absolutely have to, because in the eyes of Jesus, they were completely connected at the hip. And so that is how we got to the Bible that we have today. And a big part of the reason why we view all scripture as God's word. And we know that it all tells one big story is because of what Jesus says and in the mind of Jesus that it did. Okay, so I'm gonna ask a really simple question. We're at the plot twist portion. And here's the question. Why does this get Jesus killed? Like what has he said so far that's like, would get people fired up, right? He's like, hey, you're supposed to be salt of the earth. You're supposed to be the light of the world. You're supposed to be different and distinct. You know what's true is that the Jews were really distinct and different. Rome had come in and taken over Israel and they had not assimilated. They had fought it. They used different money. They were in every way trying to be different and distinct and set apart from the Romans that had taken them over. Their, their religious leaders were incredibly deliberate about being distinct and different. They wore special garbs. They, they, were, they, they memorized the entire Old Testament, right? How many of us have even read all the Old Testament? Much miss memorized it right? So there's a really good, I mean, like, it's almost like he's preaching to the choir. Like, what about this ultimately leads to him getting crucified? It doesn't make any sense. There's nothing that controversial that he's saying. Up until this point, this could have been any rabbi giving this teaching. So what is it that Jesus says that does make it so controversial? that makes it 
where people would be angry enough that they would want to have him killed? Well, it's what comes next. And that is that he says, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. He says, I want you to picture the people that you think embody this the most right now. They're the most distinctive, the most set apart. And I'm just telling you, if your righteousness doesn't surpass theirs, you're not, you're not going to be in the kingdom of heaven. And that is an incredibly inflammatory thing to say. And certainly, at first, everybody would have been like, well, then, in fact, at some points, people actually ask him the question, well, then who can be saved? Like, there's a couple points in the Gospels where people, like, say that phrase to him. Like, if that's true of them, and they're going all out in every area of their life, how can it be? And here's the most important thing, is that what Jesus is saying is that, yes, believers and followers of Jesus are set apart and that they're distinct and different. But the most important way that they're set apart is that they're different in their motives. That why they're different, why they're salt and light, that the why behind it is different and distinct. And it turns out, in God's eyes, that why is everything why you do things is even more important to God than what you do. We all judge each other based on what we can see. I can't see what you're thinking right now. I can only see what you do. But obviously God has insight into the very basic levels of our heart where he can see why we do what we do. So let's look at a couple of passages. When Samuel goes to find who is going to succeed King Saul, he goes and he, he talks to this father who has a bunch of sons that are big and strapping and good looking. And he says, one of your sons is supposed to be the next king. And so the father brings out all of these, you know, his boys that are, that are just studs that on the outside just look like natural leaders. And Samuel's like, nope, 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 nope. And it says, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The way that God views you is 100% dictated by what he sees on the inside of your heart, a place that only you and him can see. And that that's what matters and that that's what he's after and that that's how he wants you to be distinct and different. Yes, he does want it to translate to your actions. And yes, we should look different. But more than that, we should be different. We should have different motivations of why we do what we do. And this is one of the confusing things. Just as a side, this is one of the confusing things about church. People sometimes have had a bad experience with church. And the reason is because in every church, even the best churches, there are some people that are there because they want to feel good about themselves. And there's some people there because they feel like God has ransomed them. And they can sit side by side in the pew and they can look the same and they can do the same things. And yet they're not the same. 
Because why they're there is so different. Look at what Jesus says to the Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin. He's saying you, they were so obsessed with being salt and light that like they didn't just tithe 10% of their money. Like they get in the cupboard and they're like, okay, God's getting 10% of the Oreos. He's getting 10% of the Chips Ahoy and the Tostitos. Like I'm getting everything I've got and I'm giving him 10% of everything. They were to that level of detail. And he says, woe to you. He said, you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. What are those? Those are internal heart attitudes. You've done all the external things and you've neglected the internal heart attitudes. These you ought to have done without neglecting the other. You blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. It's so convicting. They did all the right dance steps. But in their heart, they never heard the music. This is the great thing about following Jesus. It's not about performance. It's not about how well you can do things. It's about the sincerity of your heart motives. And that's what God's after. He is after your heart. And I can tell you another thing. You can control and modify your behavior for a time, but ultimately your words and your actions become simply an overflow of what you think on the inside. And, and that's true as well about when God changes our heart, inevitably that spills over into our lives looking different and being salty and being a light for other people. When we talk about being transformed, you know, if we sing the song, change me from the inside out, this is what we're saying. God, first and foremost, work on my heart. Work on my why change that. And when he does, inevitably, we look different and we act different than the world around us. And the world around us looks at it and scratches their head. So here's the hardest question that you can ask yourself. Why? Why do you do what you do? And I'm just going to go ahead and like, I'm going to, I'm going to, fill you in on a little secret. Asking why you do what you do is an incredibly frustrating, convicting, exhausting process. Because you know what you're going to find? That you don't like the answers. At the very least, I can tell you that when I ask myself why, I don't like the answers a lot of the time. Why did I say that? Because I wanted people to think I'm great. You know? Why didn't I follow through there? Because I'm selfish. Because I'm self-interested. Why, why wasn't I willing to speak up? Because I was scared. Because I was a coward. It, because I didn't want to lose standing among my friends. When we start to ask why, we get really challenging answers. But you have to. Because the core of who you are at a soul level resides there.
and your motives and your why. And here's my challenge to you, that you would be people that ask yourself why often. There is incredible attrition in the Christian life. Statistically, statistics would say that many of you in this room won't still be going to church 10 or 20 years from now. And I'm convinced that one of the reasons that that ends up becoming true is because there's a point where we just get tired of doing the hard work of looking at our heart and asking God to change our heart's attitudes and motives. And eventually we just say, I'm tired. It's easier to not. It's easier to just kind of be a good person. To settle for the substitute instead of the thing we really need, which is transformation. That's what you and I need. We don't need better behavior. We need hearts that think about other people and the world the way that God's does. And we can't will that into existence. God's got to do that. But we have an active part in that. And it starts with us being aware. There's a really powerful analogy. I don't have a slide on it. But it's an idea of how we understand our need for the cross. And when you first become a Christian, you have an understanding that you have sin in your life and that there is a gap between you and God and that you need what Jesus did on the cross to help connect you with God and reconcile you with God. But here's the way the Christian life works. The longer we walk with God, the more we look internal, the more we ask why, the more we realize that we are more sinful than we ever thought. Our awareness, and this is one of the reasons why it's so easy to stop, because our awareness of sin grows, right? Ironically, you feel the sin in your life more acutely the longer you've walked with God because you're more aware. But you know what that does? The more we are aware of our sin, the more we're aware of the gap between our heart and God's heart, the bigger the cross becomes. What Jesus did for you and I, it becomes more sacred, becomes more necessary, it becomes more vital and we become more thankful the more we realize that who we are falls so short of who he is and how badly we need him. The, I'll make one other point. Community is so vital. It's vital having people asking you how you're doing, being in Bible studies, you know, accountability groups. These are all great things, but I'm gonna tell you a simple truth. The re- if you are not willing to do the hard work yourself, none of those things are enough because you can always obfuscate what other people see. You can always frame things in a way that'll look good to other people. Do you know what a hypocrite is? We use that word a lot. And when we use it, we use it basically to say somebody who says one thing and does another. That's actually not what it is in the way that it's used. Hypocrite was like a word for the Greek theater. And it's to wear a mask. And what it means, what Jesus is saying here, is hypocrisy is when we do things and we say we do them for one reason, but we really do them for another. And we're doing the equivalent of wearing a mask where we're obfuscating to the outside world why we do what we do. This is why 
with my family, we, we have a list of family values. And the number one value on that list is authenticity. And the way we describe it is that being fully known and authentic is better than good outward appearance. That is what it's like in the kingdom. That is what it's like to be a follower of Jesus. I have good news for you. I don't know you. I don't know your struggles. I don't know all the things in your heart, but I know this. If you are an authentic person that comes to God and says, I want what you have, that you are one of his, and that you are infinitely loved, and that he will work in your life. And that's all that matters. Okay, a couple of questions to take us out. How do you respond when you see the disconnect that I'm talking about? That my, my actions, and maybe even the way that people perceive my actions and my motives are on two different places. How do I respond? How should we respond? And then what's one area of your life where you've seen God actually change, not just your actions, but your motivations? Like at a core foundation level, you've seen him actually transform the way that you think about things, and that's led to life change.